A True North exclusive reveals Canada's Refugee Board is not tracking claimants who lie about their age despite past cases. If a Liberal MP gets his way, Senators and Members of Parliament will no longer need to swear an oath of allegiance to King Charles III. Liberals set their sights on Conservative MP Leslin Lewis over a petition calling for Canada to leave the United Nations. Hello Canada, it's Friday, January 5th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Cosman Georgia. And I'm William Macbeth. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. The federal tribunal in charge of approving refugee and asylum claims says it's not keeping track of adults who lied about their age and claimed they were unaccompanied minors upon arrival in Canada. True North asked the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada to provide statistics on how many adult claimants were discovered to have misrepresented their age to immigration officials. The board replied by saying such data were not tracked. Senior Communications Advisor Anna Pape told True North in an emailed statement, quote, an unaccompanied minor is defined as a minor claimant under 18 years old at the time of referral to the board that is not accompanied by their parent, family member, or legal guardian. The IRB has no statistics available concerning refugee claimants who misrepresent their age when making a refugee claim, as this is not data that is captured in our case management system. As of January 1st, 2017, there have been 876 refugee asylum claimants registered as unaccompanied minors and referred to the Refugee Protection Division for further evaluation. Despite claims that statistics are not tracked, the board has overseen cases in the past where adults misrepresented themselves as minors. Now, one such case, William, is from 2016, and I was surprised that I didn't hear about this sooner, but in Windsor, Ontario that year, a 30-year-old refugee from South Sudan was detained by Canadian authorities because he was found to have falsely claimed he was 17 years old and attended grade 11. He was also granted a full athletic scholarship and played on the Catholic high school's basketball team. Now, immigration officials told me that they do not keep track of these records. This particular case was actually before the time frame I requested. However... Uh, the board at the time actually dropped this case because the Canadian Border Services Agency refused to pursue any further. Now, to me, especially at a time when trust in the immigration system has fallen, polls show that more Canadians actually oppose current immigration measures than ever before. The fact that the Immigration and Refugee Board, which is tasked with making sure that we are allowing in legitimate claimants, does not track these statistics 
is an even further dent into the trust Canadians have for Canada's immigration system. Well, I think it leads Canadians to rightly ask the question, are we doing thorough screenings of those who are coming to our country? Are we really digging into the backgrounds of these people? There have been some stories recently about how uh, there haven't been threat assessments done, or if they've been done, they have been ignored uh, for people coming to Canada. And it leads everyone to wonder, just how good of a job are we doing at controlling our borders? We, we only share a border with the United States, of course. Everybody else has to come in generally by airplane. And you would think that would be a fairly easy process for Canada to effectively control. But it seems like we've just seen that we're choosing not to. And we're not putting the kind of money, time, and effort into, into researching the people who are making these claims when they come to Canada. So I think it's a legitimate question Canadians have, especially as we're ramping up levels of immigration to unprecedented levels. Do you think that the immigration system can truly handle this amount of immigrants we're bringing in? I think it's around half a million if we exclude international students and the temporary workers. Now, personally, I've seen immigration offices actually pop up at airports here in Vancouver. There is now a, I, I assume to be permanent immigration office that intakes all of these people. They're directed there to talk to Canadian immigration officials. Now, the Canadian government has hired a lot of new people, and I'm not so sure how many exactly have gone into the uh, immigration ministry but I, I mean, we, we can hardly build enough houses and it's such a complicated affair when we have to track exactly the backgrounds of people coming in and whether they, they misrepresent themselves and whether their documents are legitimate. Do you think that our government, our bureaucracy is truly capable of handling this amount of mass immigration? I, I think it's been a real shame that immigration has the, the management of Canada's immigration system has reached a point where we're starting to break what was a pretty you know, universal consensus that immigration was a net contributor to the country. I think that argument was made for, for a long time that bringing newcomers to Canada was good for our economy, it was good for building our population. Now I think though, the reality is that we are building enough homes. Our social programs are already straining under the existing demand for things like healthcare and education, and to ramp up the annual immigration targets to half a million a year, which is more than 1% of Canada's population coming in by immigration every year. I think a lot of people have some serious and legitimate questions about, about how that number was determined and about whether the Canadian economy in Canada in general can accommodate it. I, I, the other issue I think which concerns a lot of people is by bringing in such huge numbers of immigrants to Canada, are we at risk of losing social cohesion as a country that when you're importing people to Canada, you want them to bring with them the best elements of their own cultures, but adapt to the Canadian way of life that we believe in equality, democracy, peace, and all of these important central values. And if we have a lot of people coming to Canada who don't share these fundamental core values, does that put our country at risk? And I think I think it's a legitimate concern. It's a concern lots of European countries have expressed with their migration. And it's one Canada is now starting to ask itself, given unprecedented levels of immigration to this country. Senators and members of parliament will no longer need to swear an oath of allegiance to King Charles III 
if a Liberal MP's private member's bill passes. New Brunswick Liberal MP René Arsenault introduced Bill C-347, which, if passed, would end the requirement of swearing allegiance to the reigning Canadian monarch and instead would offer the option to swear an oath to office. Under Section 128 of the Constitution, every newly elected or appointed parliamentarian must swear that they will be faithful and bear true allegiance to the reigning monarch, which includes a provision that the actual name will change from time to time following the death or abdication of the Canadian monarch. A member cannot legally take his or her seat in Parliament until after they have taken the oath to the sovereign under Canada's constitution. The oath under the new bill would have members state that they will carry out their duties, quote, in the best interest of Canada while upholding its constitution, unquote. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has stated repeatedly that the monarchy's role in Canada is important and that now is not the time to debate this, saying that King Charles III is, quote, deeply aligned with values of Canada. So you see pushes like this every once in a while uh, to remove the monarchy. Some might almost call them treasonous pushes if you're a monarchist. And, you know, some have argued it's a sign that Canada isn't a grown-up country, that we have these vestiges of, of remaining loyalty and connection to who, who they are, would argue is a foreign sovereign. But I think, and I think a number of others see these moves as ways of rewriting or erasing Canada's history, understanding that we started off as a British colony and that so many of those institutions have informed our growth as a country. So... Uh, Cosman, do you think that to get rid of an oath like this is simply about bringing Canada into the 21st century, or do you think this is yet another example of Canadian history being erased or rewritten in order to fulfill some sort of a, a new progressive mandate for our country? Right. That's a good point. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of conservatives in the country, particularly those with libertarian leanings who want to see Canada become some form of republic to get, you know, to throw off the yoke of, of monarchy in the past. But to me personally, I think it's, it does remove a cultural and historical distinction. I think the monarchy and our relationship to the English crown is what makes Canada unique. And it, it does separate us in many ways from the United States. And and, you know, Latin American countries as well. The other thing is that there are people from other parties, in this case, the Liberal MP here who wants to see the monarchy done away with. But another figure is Jagmeet Singh. And Jagmeet Singh has supported the idea that Canada should embrace uh, some form of republic as its uh, model of government. And there are valid comparisons to make because it, it troubles me that conservatives, while they're willing to be upset, rightfully so, with the removal of statues and, and you know, the rewriting of history of certain historical figures like Sir John A. Macdonald, they're not willing to have the same support for this issue, the centrality of the British crown to Canadian government. I find it curious that this bill wants to rewrite this oath to say pledge allegiance to the best interest of Canada while upholding its constitution. Well, that doesn't change the fact that the crown is written into the constitution. 
King Charles III is our head of state, whether people like it or not. And when we swear allegiance, swear an oath, whether we're entering office or becoming new citizens, we swear allegiance to our head of state in Canada. You know, it's interesting. One of the advantages I've always felt about our system is that our head of state is above the petty concern of day-to-day -day politics. You look at the, the United States, and there's many admirable qualities to their system of government, but the president is head of state, which means that at any point, about half the country is generally opposed to their head of state because he also fulfills the role of head of government. Whereas uh, up here, you know, the queen and before our current king, Charles III, enjoyed widespread support because she was very much an apolitical figure, even more so than, pro than governors general who were appointed in her name, who maybe haven't had the, the same illustrious reputation as the monarch. So I do think that's one advantage, and I would hope that we can maintain that if we uh, start to change our system of government, even on the symbolic side. Yeah, and William, you know, I suspect that some of our listeners might uh, disagree with us right now. But one thing to consider, and I think it's very important, is do we really want to open up the Constitution? Because to get rid of the monarchy in Canada, I think that would be required. We would have to completely alter our system of government and rewrite the Constitution. Do we want to give the Liberal government and their NDP associates the power to rewrite our Constitution? I don't think so, and I think many of our listeners would agree. Conservative MP Leslin Lewis is facing criticism for promoting a petition advocating Canada's withdrawal from the United Nations and World Health Organization. The petition says Canada's membership in these organizations, quote, imposes negative consequences on the people of Canada or outweighing any benefits. The petition initiated by Burnaby, B.C. resident Doug Porter and sponsored by Lewis has amassed over 66,000 signatures since it opened in October. The deadline to sign it is February 7th. In a post on X, Lewis touted the petition calling on Canada to protect our national sovereignty by withdrawing from the UN and its subsidiary organizations. The Prime Minister's office and Liberal MPs have accused Lewis and the Conservatives of being conspiracy theorists and extremists. A spokesperson for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Lewis's backing of the petition prompts several questions. Trudeau's press secretary, Mohammed Hussein, said in a statement, quote, Make no mistake when someone posts a petition, it's because they agree with it. What is it about the UN that conservatives don't like? Is it the work they do for children around the world? Is it their programs to support women's rights and human rights? Liberal MP Rob Oliphant said the petition is absurd and dangerous. Further, Liberal MP Ryan Turnbull accused the Conservatives of being conspiratorial over Lewis's support for the petition. To me, William, a lot of these criticisms are classic examples of straw manning. I don't think people oppose the UN because of the work they do with children, their charity work, or their programs for women's rights or human rights. I think the problem they have with the United Nations and other organizations at that level is that they are 
international organizations and don't particularly always respect the sovereignty of member states. Since the pandemic, I think a lot of Canadians and people around the world are questioning what these organizations bring to the table. Would you say that there's any value provided to Canadians by continuing to be a part of the UN or the WHO? I certainly think the goals of some UN programs are laudable. The idea that there are children living in poverty and that those children need our, our help and support, that in cases of global emergency, there needs to be a body that can coordinate a global response. I don't think anybody has much disagreement with some of those goals. Where I think the whole argument falls down is you only have to watch how groups like the WHO and the United Nations operate before you realize that that's not at all what they're doing. First of all, these are not democratic bodies. Uh, you know, the UN membership is composed of a lot of tyrants and dictatorships, relatively few democracies. And sure, do they claim to support human rights? Of course they do. And then they put some of the worst serial human rights abusers on the panels and commissions for human rights. They claim that they're trying to represent those facing persecution, and yet so much of their discussion involves anti-Semitism and attacking Israel. Uh, not to mention that it is a complete and total waste of money. We spend millions of dollars each year to be a member of the UN, and a lot of that goes to diplomats living the high life, jet-setting around the world, as opposed to actually doing anything useful with the money they are given by our taxpayers. So uh, for the liberals and the, and the government to claim that, oh, this means the conservatives are opposed to the laudable UN goals. No, I think they think that the UN is an ineffectual uh, at best and, uh, you know, borderline criminal at worst organization that is simply undemocratic, unrepresentative, and unresponsive to the concerns that anybody raises about it. I think that's the reality of the case. That's it for today, folks. Make sure to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. Also, please keep an eye out for the Alberta Roundup with Rachel Emanuel on Saturday. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to share our work with your friends and neighbors. And if able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news.